0: I actually have a cat sitting on my lap right now. Can you guys hear purring noises? (laughs) No.
1: Okay, okay. Is your cat purring?
0: Yeah. Yeah, she is. This is Grace Hopper, the finest technologist in the land.
2: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component 1, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hey,
0: everybody, and welcome to JavaScript Jabber, episode 84. I am Jameson Vance, filling in as a host for Chuck, who is, uh, I don't know, he's not here. We have Joe Eames. Hey there. And we have a special guest, Michael Rogers. Hello. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself for people that haven't heard of you?
2: Uh, sure, sure. I'm Michael Rogers. I, I write a lot of JavaScript code and do a lot of stuff with Node, and I run a bunch of conferences, and um, I'm the CTO of a little startup called Gettable.
0: So one major question is, what percentage of, of people pronouncing your name say it wrong? Because uh, it's not
2: spelled normally, Intentionally like, or right. unintentionally? I don't know. Either way. <laughs> A, a good percentage of people that know me well mispronounce it on purpose to to mess with okay. me. But <laughs> most people, first time they they mispronounce it, and then they immediately ask,
1: "What? Where is that? Where is that from?"
2: Because it is a very interesting spelling, and and the answer is just that my parents were hippies, and they just <laughs> decided to make up a spelling. It it has no ethnic like base at all. <laughs>
0: There, so I'm I live in Utah and there's this this trend sweeping the state to name your child like this normal name but just with the spelling tweaked. So <laughs> you were you were way ahead of the game on that. Yeah, I'm a hipster since birth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you were a hipster before hipsters even existed. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like you were too modest. I I would classify you as like the first champion of Node, right? Like. You run NodeConf, which is the biggest Node.js conference, and you are, like, super influential in talking about what Node does and what it does well, and you're always in, like, the module discussions, like, championing NPM, and I don't know. You're, you're like, one of the pieces of Node.
2: And NPM doesn't need much of a champion. It's kind of just... It's, it's doing pretty well without me or anybody. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a force to be reckoned with. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I got into it really early. So, I mean, I would say that the first champion of it was probably Jan Learnhart. I mean, at least in, in my eyes. Like, there were a bunch of people that got behind it early on and started developing it. But Jan uh, really has a knack for sort of promoting things and getting people excited about them. And so Jan is running JSConf EU, and this was in 2009. He, he was running JS Conf U and had Ryan give the first talk on Node.js. And that was where most people found out about Node.js. And so Jan was throwing it and talked to me about it because he's an old friend from Couch One. We were at the Couch v company together. And I was like, well, that looks really interesting. I, I, should, I should check that out. This was actually before I was at the Couch v company. This was when I was still at Mozilla. And so I started sort of poking around at it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, and then I kind of put it down. And then a few days later, Jan asked if anybody had written an HTTP uh, proxy yet. And I looked, and nobody had written an HTTP proxy and known yet. It was, it was actually that early and i had written this http proxy in in python as part of this testing tool called windmill and it was a very very fancy proxy i mean it did it did so much it you know would it would spoof like it would it would basically make all of the traffic look like it came from the same domain to get around the same domain security policy and did all this fancy stuff and then to make the test run faster i had implemented over about 3 years like every crazy hack that you could do to make an http proxy faster so it was like i know how to write a proxy i'll I'll poke around with that with node I should be able to finish this in like a weekend. And it took me like maybe three or four hours to write a full proxy. And then when I ran it and tested it, it was already faster than my Python proxy. Wow. Uh, and so, and this was, this was node 0, like, 020 or something, 0, 010. This was really early. I mean, this was when promises were still in, in, in core. And I was like, well, I guess I need to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to write Python anymore. <laughs> um, and I decided not to write Python anymore because all of the things that I was doing, you Node know, was already better at even back then. And so just so- sort of going in that early and, and being really comfortable with HTTP and, and knowing the spec really well, I-, I was able to be like kind of influential in the early days and, and get a few like nice little patches into core, particularly around streaming and, and uh, the HTTP client. I've always been associated with core more than I've ever actually contributed to it. My, my contributions to core are pretty minimal. The, you know, my biggest contribution is actually probably, like, a one-line patch that I did that kind of changed the way that streams work fundamentally. So there was a patch that I put in. If you're familiar with node streams at all, they're this object that can scope to a file handler, like a socket or... or a part of the file system. And the cool thing about streams is that you can sort of pipe them together. So if I, if I know how to read a file, then I also know how to read an HTTP request or an HTTP response or an HTTP client response or an HTTP server input, right? It's the same sort of interface to do all of that, which is really nice for when you write a module and you want to transform some data. It just kind of works everywhere. So what I put in was a, a patch that basically just emitted an event for when a pipe event on the source stream. So now a stream knew about its input and its output rather than just its output, which meant that we could do a lot of the the really fancy stream stuff that you see in in requests and other libraries where we look at the input and do something different, basically.
0: Sure. You just casually dropped that, but you wrote request, which is the HTTP library that everyone
2: uses pretty much in Node. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was probably the first library that I put up that people were using, and that was before NPM, too. So, I mean, I had no idea how many people were using it or or what they were doing with it or anything like that because it had predated NPM. And it went through several iterations as Node changed and, and also as NPM went up and changed. So.
0: Do you want to talk about Node Conf a little bit, kind of its format and what makes it
2: unique and cool? Yeah, well, its format is is ever-changing. I mean, I've invented a new format every year so far. The first year was a little bit more standard, but the next year was really unique and new, and, and this year was very unique and new. So what I try to do with Node Comp is just sort of figure out what I feel the community needs at any given time, and then create a format that helps us express that and, and brings that all to the forefront. So in 2012... Node was growing really, really fast, but we sort of hadn't put out into even the community leadership a lot of the basic knowledge about, like, streams. And, and also, what was really happening at that time was that everybody's idea of Node was very small. So if you if you thought about it as like a, a front end build tool, that's all that you thought that it did. And if you if you thought that it was like for express apps, that was all that you thought that it did. And so what I really wanted to do was expand what people thought of as as being Node. So we had some of the first like node hardware talks there. And the the format that I created for that was basically in a theater and it was it was two days long and there were three acts in each day. And there was a narrative. So the first day was sort of about like The world of Node and Second Day was about something else that I forgot. (laughs) And I think it's like the growth of a note, I can't remember. But basically there was, there's this narrative structure so that um, there's a beginning and a middle and an end and there were only 20 minute talks and so each talk and an act would blend into the next and I was able to get the speakers, especially because this time nobody had ever asked any of these speakers to do a 20 minute talk before. Everybody was like doing 40 minute talks at the time. So they really felt like they didn't have enough time which forced them to kind of work together and you know say, well if you're handling this then I don't need to cover it and then I can just kind of pick up where you left off. And it worked out really really well, especially in some of the sections like the streams section and stuff like that. So that was great, and, and that went super, super well. And then this year, I felt like that format was really good at opening up what people thought of as being Node, but didn't really make them feel enabled to use Node. If you were an Express developer, and then you saw the hardware talk, you were like, it's really cool that people do that. And not, I can do that. <laughs> so I really wanted everybody that left NodeConf this year to not just think of it as being bigger, but really feel enabled to, to poke at all of the different parts of Node, even outside of their comfort zone. So rather than do talks, what I wanted to do was more hands-on stuff. So in a session, or in what used to be a talk, I wanted people to actually write code and accomplish something. So we went up to Walker Creek Ranch, which is um, a summer camp in Marin County that I've uh, this is actually my fourth year running a conference there. Um, I used to run sort of node unconferences there, and like four years back, I cashed to be conference. But this year, we we were way bigger than any of those conferences. We were over 300 people. And we took over sort of the entire ranch, and we basically had eight sessions. And each session was about an hour long, and it had between 30 and 40 people in each one. And so – and then – You know, each group would mix up, and then there would be, and then you'd go to another session. So when you, let me explain that better. When you got to NodeConf, you got a schedule, and it said which session that you were in at every different time, every different time slot. You didn't know what they were about. And so each session, they would sort of address a concept, and then you would actually sit down and write something and accomplish something. So in the hardware one, you would actually write some code that, you know, at least blinked an LED or maybe moved a servo around. In the copter one, you actually, you know, you were flying copters by the end. In Isaac's session, he actually got you to write a patch to core. It would never be accepted, but you actually did patch core and compiled it and, and stuff. And all of the sessions were like that. And... There were, you know, between two and four people in each session sort of collaborating and getting that together. And all of those people way ahead of time, I mean, months and months and months ahead of time started collaborating on the content and format for that. And it turned out really, really well. Everybody walked away like really feeling much more enabled than they were before. And that that venue is very good at sort of bringing people together and breaking down all the social barriers and, and people bring out their family and their kids and everything. It's it's a really great kind of community atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I actually went to that Node Conf, and we were talking about this before the show a little bit. It, so the hallway track is like a classic part of a conference. And when you're at this ranch where you're like hanging out at the lake or like playing frisbee or just chilling outside, it's mm-hmm. the best hallway track ever, right? Like it breaks <laughs> yeah. down the artificial barriers between, like you said, between like the open source celebrities and just the average people that are there to have fun. So I think it was, it was sweet. I talked to lots of people that I wouldn't have talked to at a normal conference, I feel like.
2: Yeah, and there, there's a lot of really standout things that happen. I remember the first time that I ever ran something there, it was, it was Couch Camp, and I didn't even think about having the Foursquare game, and I ended up bringing chalks that people could do art, and we had a, a kickball, and people just started, were like, oh, we can do Foursquare, and Foursquare blew up. <laughs> like, people love playing Foursquare. Geeks love Foursquare for some reason, and so, and Substack turns out to be like a Foursquare drunk master. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like a beer in one and and just dominating this game <laughs> it's pretty great you never think it but yeah
0: that's sweet mm-hmm. yeah it was it was a good time and I feel like it changes the way that I'll look at conferences in the future I don't know that sounds too breathless and it was fun
2: I think that when conferences are good, what they are is an experience. So it's not it's not like an an event or something that you you don't consume it, you experience it. And and the good conference organizers always think about it from the point of view of like an attendee that shows up and, and makes it from the first day to the last day. And everybody sort of has a different take and a different spin that they put on that. But all of the good sure. conferences think about it that way. I think that, you know, there's a bunch of conferences run by, like, you know, corporations that don't think about it that way. And, you know, you're just sort of, <laughs> you're just sort of the product or the consumer of this, of all this, you know, content. But that's certainly how, like, me and, and all of the JSConf family people have have always looked at it. Sure. And certain and- people have taken that to totally new levels. I mean, this year, real-time Conf was insane. Uh, Adam Brault and the whole and crew i mean i i had a narrative structure at with the 20 minute talks he he actually didn't just create a narrative structure he created a novel i mean literally there was a novel that came out that you had to read before the conference there was also an audiobook for it and a and a graphic novel for it and then where that story it's it's just like like dystopian future novel where that ends the conference begins and the conference takes on that story and then there are actors and i was a speaker and i had like a name that was my character name and i had to give the talk as my character it was amazing (laughs) but yeah definitely took the the experience portion of conferences to a whole nother level
0: this is pretty timely, too, because Joe is actually part of a, a group organizing NgConf, right, the Angular conference, and I know he's also put a lot of thought into making
1: it an experience. Yeah, mostly it was, how can we make this just like uh, NodeConf? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that was like one of the biggest fighting points or discussion points was like, well, NodeConf was so awesome and we played Foursquare. That was the, I remember the Foursquare story just, we played Foursquare, can we play Foursquare at (laughs) NGConf? Yeah, I mean, I've
2: definitely like, so you should steal good ideas. You should be merciless about stealing good ideas. But you always have to think about why you're adding them, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it can't, I mean, I've been to a few conferences, uh, that have just sort of taken these ideas and just, it's, they just sort of it's, it was like a potpourri of conference stuff, right? And not really like a clear reason for like why this was happening or that was happening at any given time. And I mean, you really just have to think about like, yes, you you want Foursquare, but like, where do you put it, and why, and what are people thinking when they get there, right? And there's all mm-hmm. these little social hacks that you have to do, like you know, if as, so much as like the trip from taking people from one place to the next, if you just change the way that you make that journey, people are going to have a different experience when they get to the end of it, right? Like real time comp started. Um, You know, everybody was staying in this hotel and we did breakfast at this hotel and then we had to walk sort of four blocks away. And, you know, we're about to go from breakfast and planes into this crazy narrative novel. And so what happens is everybody gets their flag for their country that they're from. And then everybody stands behind a color guard and a marching band shows up. And then the marching band is this high school marching band is playing and we literally marched there. And then before we got into the doors, there were like actors playing protesters that were protesting the, the conference and some of the things that were happening. And so <laughs> like, and if we wouldn't have walked that, if we wouldn't have had that experience when we walked there, if we just would have kind of showed up and there'd be this protest, it'd be like, what the hell This is weird and kind of cheesy, but it just, it, it totally, it takes you over when you start it like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so, I mean, yeah.
0: We don't just want to, like, make people feel bad that didn't go to the node conflict. I think the value <laughs> of this is, is that the JS community is amazing and that there's awesome stuff happening that you could try and be a part of. I, I also want to talk about Node specifically because we have a large audience of people that aren't Node developers necessarily. They're, they're more front-end JS developers. Like, what does Node matter to these people? Maybe they don't write backends, or maybe they do, but it's in a different language. Why do they care about Node?
2: that those people actually are using Node. (laughs) I mean, it's the it's the same way that, you know, people that were doing CSS and HTML and some jQuery didn't call themselves JavaScript developers because they just knew how to sort of plug jQuery stuff around. They didn't identify as JavaScript developers. But, I mean, most front-end developers now are using Node for something. You know, they're using Grunt for some kind of task or, you know, they're using some kind of build process for their CSS or whatever. And all of that stuff is being built in Node. So... And you should think about it the same way as you did, you know, like a jQuery or a JavaScript. Uh, Node is becoming something that you can just kind of take for granted. So, I mean, the next, like, if you need to accomplish a task, you know, if you need to do, you don't have to be writing a back end. You could just be writing some kind of system process or you want to, you know, scrape some website or you just want to do, you want to accomplish a task that, you know, isn't in the browser. You should really reach for Node because a lot, you know, the language and also the patterns are all there and they're all really familiar. And in addition to that, there's just this unbelievably large module community. So anything that you need to do is is just you know a, a matter of finding the modules that you need and kind of stringing them together.
1: Yeah. So I've got this course with Pluralsight, Angular Fundamentals, that's been seen by a lot of people. And one of the most common pieces of feedback is in our course, we use a Node backend, right? And people saying, "Ah, oh, why do I have to know Node? Right? To give you a little bit of background, there's probably a fairly heavy uh number of dot net developers who are watching this course. I mean the the dark matter of the corporate uh developer universe, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think there's you know still a fair amount of people like like you said, there's a lot of front end developers that are probably using some node that don't realize it. Mm-hmm. But there's probably a lot of web developers out there that actually haven't learned Node, haven't used yet, you know, these corporate Java dot net type developers. I haven't used it yet and still haven't seen the vision of what is the value and power of it. And through my courses, I keep trying to, you know, convey that, hey, Node is awesome. There's all these things and you should be learning it. If you don't know it right now, you're falling behind the times. Even if you don't use it, even if your company says you cannot use Node, you're falling behind if you're not up to date with Node and doing it, you know, uh, at least know a little bit of basics. Like you said, that idea that we have paradigms already, they're, that we're familiar with because we know JavaScript. Just about everybody that does any web is gonna know a little bit of JavaScript. Yes. So, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I would say that, like, Node is probably the most accessible platform of all of its contemporaries. I mean, and that's not just because it's in, in JavaScript, although that certainly helps. And JavaScript as a language has proved to be more accessible than any other language on the planet. I mean, there are more people turn into web developers that are not formally trained than any other language in the world. All right, and it is you know, the other platform and programming interface in the world. So, And, and Node gets to benefit from that being in JavaScript, but also Node is always thinking about things from the point of view of how do we make this as simple as possible, as easy as possible, as flexible as possible. So you don't have to... You know, when you go to learn Rails, you really need to go and learn all of these sort of Rails patterns. And, you know, people like me obsess about node patterns, and people like me and Substack and and these other people really obsess about these these node patterns. But when you start dipping your toe in and when you're just starting out, everything is just kind of obvious. You don't need to learn how streams work for a little while. You don't need to learn all of the the little intricacies of the module pattern at first. You know, you can really just sort of start moving and go really, really fast actually and build a lot of stuff without just sort of piecing it along. And there's a lot of amazing learning resources now to, to even get you over the early hump of just, you know, dipping your toe in. So, you know, I, I you know, I feel like Node has to prove itself to all of these people in all of these different contexts and, you know, replacing a backend with Node. We have a lot of literature and a lot of writing and a lot of benchmarks and things like that 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 help people make that decision to either transition or to put a layer between their existing sort of old back end and and the new front end they want to do. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking about that side of Node I don't think people are talking enough about the, well, I know .NET and I know HTML and JavaScript and, and a little bit of front-end JavaScript. What can I do with Node? Well, the answer is that anything that you need to do, you know, and, and it's, going, it's going to be easier and it's going to be more accessible and there's going to be a much larger community of people also solving this problem and also working with you on it and a lot more existing work to draw from in solving those, the problems just that you would have as a front-end developer. So, right. That's what I'd say there. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Very well said.
0: Yeah. Related to this, there was this article that the Group on Engineering blog posted where they were running a Rails app to basically render their other front end content. And mm-hmm. we we're just running into some problems with that. And they split it up into a bunch of tiny node apps that would render HTML and talk to several different APIs. And the use case for Node was that you're doing lots of I.O. and you're you're making lots of requests in like at the same time to different back ends and mm-hmm. the async I.O. stuff is just perfect for that. That's kind of been our use for Node, too. We we run uh, a bunch of little services that all kind of talk to each other, and it's just so nice to be able to use async and just do like an async.parallel and make these five requests and join them all together and then come back to me when you're done. And know that that's not going to block and have to do a threading to make that fast and stuff, so...
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Node. Uh, the people in Node Core, especially, and, and people like me, we tend to obsess about performance. And so we start talking about like, oh, well, why is this certain use case with this buffer allocation not as fast as it should be? But when you really start to break it down and put Node next to its contemporaries, it's really fast. <laughs> like, it's just unbearably fast compared to a lot of its competition. And even if you take out the async IO stuff and you just start doing some processing, it's actually a lot faster than a lot of its contemporaries so and
0: that's amazing because it's reaping all the benefits of the browser wars right like you just yeah. VA gets faster and then node gets faster for free <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean one of the like people don't talk about this enough but you know the, the JVM is quite fast especially if you can tune it and, and kind of tweak it. And a lot of that comes from the fact that there were dueling JVMs for a long time. Like IBM had one and Sun had one and there were lots of people sort of like trying to do better JVMs and competing with each other. And that kind of tapered off or is kind of died out. I don't I don't see a lot of innovation there anymore. I mean there's sort of one JVM now and there's innovation there's new innovation happening there in terms of features and even some performance, but there's not competition anymore. And the Browsers are still competing for the fastest VM. There's there's more VMs now than there were five years ago, and all of you know all of those performance gains are readily accessible.
1: But wait, I saw a YouTube video that says that it's slow. Oh, that guy's hilarious. Every, <laughs> that guy is God, a geek, man.
2: You, you need to link into that. Like he is some kind of comic savant. Like oh uh, man, he's some sort of like Andy Kaufman esque like uh, internet
1: troll. <laughs> because, <laughs>
2: Like I've never seen somebody so upset about something that other people did and then also so upset for a bunch of reasons that are just factually inaccurate. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, you should but, you should definitely put that in the show notes. I mean you never would have heard of him if not for that. Jesus a- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that man is hilarious. I love that JavaScript, JavaScript is slow. JavaScript is slow. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, it's not like they've spent ten years getting super fast or anything. But. Another
0: thing that's been happening lately is is just more talk about modules. I know there was mm-hmm. some discussion about uh, AMD versus CommonJS, basically, and the, yeah, this, I should post that just in the show notes. We'll do that. But there's this. It's basically a blog post as a gist by James Burke, who's the required JS guy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm in that. I'm in there
2: too in the comments and stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so AMD is talking about why it's the best forum for the web, and then there's some back and forth between uh, some people talking about Common JS. Do you want to kind of summarize that and talk about your position on it?
2: Yeah, I can. I mean well I think that AMD versus Common JS is, is a false premise. Like that's that's not a that's not really in an, an argument or a conversation that matters. What you care about if you are a front-end developer is what tool do you use to modularize your own code and to get valuable assets from, from an ecosystem, right? How do you get other people's code and, and use it well? And how do you get access to, to more of that? Um, so what tooling do you use for that? And also what tooling do you use for minification, for you know CSS translation? Like, There's all this different sort of front end tooling. And there's a lot of different sort of tooling ways of doing that kind of tooling. And a lot of people are, are competing in that space. Different tools have decided to go with different module formats. Most of the tools end up taking whatever module formats get popular enough to care about. So Browserify is a, it's a very popular module uh, written by Substack that is in Node. And what Browserify does is that it basically emulates the Node module environment enough that you can take a lot of modules that are in NPM that are written for Node that nobody even thought would run in the front end that, that would do, and they work great. Or you can write a new module using the standard kind of Node patterns and NPM to publish and install it locally, and it won't even run in Node. It only works in the browser. You can sort of package all of that up and use those same patterns in the browser. So the the code that you write looks more like node's module pattern, right, when you are writing your application code and when you're using this tooling. But Browserify also, you know, the Browserify way of doing things is the node way, which is we just write all these tiny little modules that do all this stuff. And so there's a Browserify AMD compatibility thing. There's a Browserify component compatibility thing. So all the different ways to sort of uh, package code and different module formats to use, Browserify will consume and use, right? Required JS it was written to the AMD specification and has decided that it's not going to support any other module format. And the the reasons that it has for that are is basically a list of features that they have implemented as part of the tooling that require that module format in truth you could do some fancy stuff to wrap up other module formats but they don't really want to hear that that's not the conversation they want to have they want to have this this conversation about why why aren't you using amd and i don't really i don't really care if people use amd or if they use the the node module format i do care that People that are in the front-end community have access to the entire ecosystem of modules, which is primarily written to the node pattern. I mean, there's, you can't have a conversation about JavaScript modules without, like, you know, tacitly admitting that node has kind of won this. By any measure that we have, the node module format is 40 or 50 times larger and and more accessible. And there are more modules published than any of the the dominant front-end module patterns. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of my take on that whole argument.
0: (laughs) So, required just can work with common JS modules. It's hacky though, like you said. Like, there, you have to do some code manipulation. I don't think Merrick should be here, but you you have, I think you have to change your code, basically. Yeah. Like run it through a converter or, or stick some extra code in there for it.
2: Yeah, and on the browserify side, you can require an AMD module exactly like the regular browserify node patterns. So they sort of, in fact, they refer to, to the, the the AMD module as the D-AMD-FI. So it basically sort of takes out the AMD stuff and and sort of normalizes it into a node module. And you could do the reverse; it wouldn't actually be that difficult. Yeah, and like you you could definitely wrap up a, a node module. I mean, there are certain little things that may not work or maybe a little weird like module that exports, but you can make it work. Sure.
0: Another part of this discussion goes into, you mentioned Bower and NPM. I think that's another part of the discussion. Where do you put modules? And some of the complaints against using NPM for browser modules are static asset compilation because, or, or packaging basically. So I mean, you mm-hmm. can put anything you want in, or in NPM, right? Like you yeah. put binary files in there or whatever. But the package.json format that npm expects doesn't have any spec for specifying, like, this is where my fonts live, this is how you consume them.
2: Right, right, but at the same time, there are a lot of properties on package.json used by a lot of tools that aren't specified by NPM or by or in the package.json spec. So for instance, Browserify has several properties. If you wanna, say, overlay a module to be used in the browser that's different from in Node, there's property in package.json that you use for that. That's not specified anywhere in NPM, it's just a thing that Browserify made up. If you had any tooling that you wanted to do special stuff with those assets, you could just add it to package.json. I believe Grunt actually does some, some of this as well. I'm not sure. Off the top of my head what they are, though, but it's really common to just extend package.json and add whatever properties that you care about.
0: It's common to extend it. I feel like the problem comes in where you want to enshrine those as a standard, right? Node mm-hmm. doesn't want to put browser-specific stuff in its package.json format. I mean, why do they have an incentive to, to support a fonts property when Node doesn't need that? But if you really want to use NPM as the browser package management, like package mm-hmm. repository, I mean, you need to solve that problem in a
2: generalized way. Well, but what you we have to realize is that Node and npm are separate. And what Node needs or what MPM needs can be different, and, and that's understood. From day one, Isaac has said, you should totally put... Front end assets in NPM. And, and like NPM is for JavaScript modules. Just put in whatever you want. Second, he said pretty bluntly that, you know, you can extend package.json with whatever you want. I mean, we're never going to, like, Node's never going to, you know, decide that it needs the font property and, and <laughs> do different semantics with the font property that you, that you decided to create. There's, there's an incentive for you to, to extend it, and there's all of the ability in the world for you to use that. And if enough people use it, it becomes a de facto standard. There are a couple properties actually in package. JSON started out as people just setting metadata, and then we, you know, decided that that should be in the website. The the way that the Node community likes to work, especially if there's um, so with package JSON and with the sort of npm repository, there is sort of this single point of truth, right? So the data for this module is at this namespace, and then there is this JSON file for it. And what those properties mean, you know, Node has some definitions for that it it elevates on the website. For everything else, n- nodes sort of mantra and the NPM mantra is the ecosystem should figure this out on its own. If, you know, like allow thousands of flowers to bloom and then whichever ones sort of make it and become really big and people get really into, those are the ones that will say, okay, you've won and we're going to start to elevate some of those properties and and start to look at this metadata a little bit clearer. So, I, I mean, I guarantee that if enough people were using the font property in package JSON, that something would go into the NPM website that said, oh, this package has fonts, here's what the fonts are.
0: Have there been any front-end specific things that have made it into package.json yet, or is it just not standardized enough yet?
2: So, I mean, package.json is just a place for any metadata about the module, right? (laughs) I wouldn't even think about it as a standard, so... There was a CommonJS standard for packets.json that was primarily written by Isaac and a little bit me. And, you know, before we left CommonJS, and after we left CommonJS, it's just sort of like, okay, we're not, we're not doing standard bodies shit anymore. We're just, we're just gonna build stuff we're just going to build stuff and we're going to see what works and we're going to experiment a lot and whatever works, works. And so the package JSON format like there are properties that NPM uses and then there are properties that Browserify uses and any other tool in NPM can decide to use or not. So if you want to create a new property with some, with some good data on it, go for it and encourage other people to do the same. There are also new, new packages like Atomify that are sort of trying to take a, a modular piece of not just JavaScript but also some templates and some CSS and package that up into a module that can be reused, and that's also creating a bunch of new package.json properties that um, it uses internally for some metadata. So yeah, I mean, the the answer to this really is just just start adding the package.json, and if your tool that consumes them can just read the package.json and do whatever it needs to.
1: Sure. Yeah. So for anybody that may not be familiar with all of the topics that we've discussed, if we should take a quick step back and do a couple of things and like define, talk about the different popular module systems that are out there, and then kind of maybe a little bit of the history of NPM and the uh, package.json and the purpose that it serves, kind of some basics on that? Sure.
2: I mean, how far do you want to go back? Uh, I know all the history.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Give us the, uh, what is it, the elevator talk? The elevator So when Ryan first built
2: Node, he took a module format uh, from a group called CommonJS, which was primarily developers of Narwhal. So Narwhal was a – it was trying to be sort of a Node thing but built on the JVM uh, with RhinoJS. Uh, Node really took off, and Ryan kind of earlier than everybody divested from from CommonJS, and me and Isaac were pretty involved still.
0: So CommonJS um, existed before Node, right? It was a yes, standard that attempted yes. to provide a, a module well, so, system for JavaScript. Okay, right?
2: so so CommonJS was was a mailing list that thought that it was a standard body. And um, <laughs> and in many ways early on this was a very good thing. Like it could move a lot quicker than a standards body because it was just mailing list of people and we just, we just talk and, and people were mostly in agreement for like the early part of it. And then as more people were sort of added, the disagreements piled up. And now the problem with thinking that you're a standards body is that, oh my god, this stuff matters so much, we have to be really, really serious and, and like, oh god, we, we, we have to think about every single use case ever imagined and, and enshrine it into the spec. So that's what CommonJS was. And what, what Ryan did was he took their modules standard. He took what was called modules 1.0, I think. And then, or maybe it was 1.1. And then I wrote an extension to it so that we could support CommonJS modules in CouchDB. So CacheDB also uh, still to this day actually has support for standardized CommonJS modules. Then Isaac wrote NPM, and package.json sort of was a thing in CommonJS and in the kind of Node.js community, but he had extended it so dramatically and needed so many things out of it that he just kind of took it over. And, ab- and at first those things were making it their way into specs, and then eventually they didn't. And even the first version of the NPM registry all of the sort of REST interfaces and what they did, those were described in a spec that he wrote for CommonJS that nobody really took up or cared about. And then, you know, slowly but surely, me and Isaac divested from CommonJS because while CommonJS was arguing about very tiny little things, Node was just blowing up. And we really wanted the freedom for Node to do the best module system possible for modules. We just wanted it to be the, the best way for you to write a JavaScript module it should be over here. And, and we were more comfortable taking the momentum in the ecosystem that was happening and all the people writing all this stuff to figure that out and experiment and, and sort of see which one wins than we were with a bunch of people on a mailing list. So And, and that worked. I mean, you know, there are over 40,000, last time I checked, something modules in NPM. In There's about 100 today that get added. It's the fastest growing ecosystem you know, of any platform in the world now. So it's, that ended up working out really, really well for us. And CommonJS sort of stayed around. Then they went into this rabbit hole where they wanted asynchronous module loading. When they started that, we were still there. And we were thinking about that problem. And around that time, Substack did his first version of Browserify. And so Browserify took all all these amazing modules in Node and made them accessible in the browser without changing the module format. And so we said, oh, okay, that problem's solved. Like, that will get better. You know, yes, it doesn't do certain fancy features that you can do with the standard of AMD, but it's proving that there's a path to get all this stuff into the browser. So we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to optimize the module system for modules, not worry about, like, these browser edge cases. This is sort of the the philosophy of Node in general, is that everything should be a tiny module Module, everything should, you know, the concerns should be separated. AMD as a standard, which is an asynchronous module definition, it's, it's a module definition that it required JS uses, and is a, it's fairly, fairly popular for certain module formats. And Dojo moved all of its plugins and all of its modules to it sort of overnight. Um, so it got a big boost from that. That module standard has all this sort of asynchronous loading boilerplate in it. Uh, and the reason is because, you know, they want to be able to do this feature and they wanted that feature to be in the module format itself. Now, you can do asynchronous module loading of, you know, browser-ified modules if you use this sort of, like, these certain patterns or if you use this certain tooling or if you decide to do this certain thing at this time. If you import, you know, this asynchronous loader, you can do it. It's just that most people don't. And it's not, we didn't elevate that problem to, to putting in that boilerplate for everybody that ever wrote a module. And they did, and that's fine. That's that's their prerogative. But yeah, that's and that's about where we are today. I mean like the, the module standard continued to evolve. Around that time we also moved to all node modules are installed locally rather than globally. So if you've you've used Python or Ruby or actually any platform, when you install a package, it gets installed for the runtime, right? When you run Python, you can get every Python module you've ever installed. That is the opposite of how node works. So when you install an NPM package, it installs it into your local repository. So you have a project and you NPM install your package for that project and it installs it just locally. And so, uh, moving to that meant that, you know, there were certain complications with Okay, okay. let me back up a little bit. One of the things that this does is that it allows us to get this kind of holy grail of package management where you can have two different dependencies and they require conflicting versions of the same module. So one hasn't been updated, hasn't updated its jQuery dependency forever and one is on jQuery 2, right? Well, they just get their own version of jQuery since they need their own version of jQuery to work and they don't conflict with each other and they don't override global stuff. And that's a really, really important pattern when you want to build out a huge, broad ecosystem of modules because If people can't install these safely and rely on them to work, they won't use modules and they won't publish modules, right? The harder that you make this to make it to do things right and the harder that you make it, you know, for things to not blow up, the less people are just going to write modules. And the NPM philosophy has always been we need to make sure that the system encourages people to write more modules, (laughs) encourages people to publish more modules. It should always be easier to use a module than it is to write one. Or to write a new one, and it should always be easier to publish a module than to not publish a module. So that's sort of the the npm philosophy, and where I feel like we're at now. And npm stands for Node Package Manager, and it started out as just a package manager for Node, but now it, you know you can install it for you can use it to install front end tools, and those front end tools can digest things in those module format without even really being used in Node. I hope that explains.
0: That does explain. That's so okay. Info. <laughs> <laughs> We are kind of close to wrapping up. Do you have anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Do you have any question that is just, like, teeing it up for you that you wish we would have asked? (laughs)
2: Um, no, no. I think that we talked about a lot of really good Node stuff. There's just so many things happening in the Node community that it's hard to put uh, your finger on one or two of them. Oh, oh, you brought up the Groupon thing. So there's, there's sort of two stories of running Node in production right now, and... I feel like people are started, starting to conflate them. So one is the, the sort of Node in Enterprise story, and the other is new startups building new things in Node. And the way in which they build these things out are actually really different. The Node in Enterprise story is, is kind of interesting. It's basically that there is a team of people at a big company, and they want to move a lot faster, and they want to write you know, a mobile app and, and a desktop app a lot quicker than the current infrastructure allows. So what they do is they don't touch the existing crazy backend that's in Java or .NET or whatever it is. They write a little Node app, and it talks to that back end, and then it serves out their new front end. So that's what Walmart does. That's what um I think Airbnb does that. That's what LinkedIn does. That's what all these companies are doing that have that problem. The new startup on Node is very different. So the new startup on Node is is what I would call – um it has an aversion to infrastructure. So you just set up node processes, and you try not to go with other things. You probably have a database, because you need a database, but you you really don't want to run a lot of extra external services, because everything that you run that isn't node is just another thing that's harder to debug than it is to do node. And it's another thing that has another deployment process, and it has another crazy log file format that you need to parse and worry about. It's just another thing to worry about. Whereas if all of your services are just node processes, you just run them. And the database is sort of the last thing that people are sort of running outside of that. But most of these people are, you know, they're writing their load balancers in Node. They're writing things that used to do operations that you would put into Redis, just all in Node. And now we are finally writing databases in a node. The community is beautiful and amazing and totally not something you should put in production yet. Um, <laughs> but basically, there's a really beautiful modular community around building a database, which, which I really think is the future of database development, though. Because if you look at the way the databases are developed now, they get to share very little code between each other. And they're even able to use very little code from the ecosystem that they're using, like their programming language. So LevelDB is actually used by a couple of these databases like React, or at least a fork of LevelDB is. And so LevelDB is sort of like lowest level part of the database possible. It's just like the thing that writes to the disk. And then you build sort of every abstraction that you want, whether it's SQL or React or Hadoop or whatever, you can build on top of that primitive. And so what what we did in the Node community was that we modularized everything on top of that. Even the, the interface to that LevelDB is what's called level down. It's like an abstract level down. And then on top of that is level up. And then this huge ecosystem is built on top of level up. So there's a multi-level to get multiple versions of that. There's ways to do versioning. There's ways to do map reduce indexes. There's there's all these little plugins and all these little modules. And then even the level down layer is actually modularized. So you can see which performance characteristics you work the best with. So there are like three primary forks of LevelDB, as well as there's some stuff that works in the browser and on top of index database and uh, one that works on top of local storage. And so you can take this huge ecosystem of databases and then run it either in the browser or you can write it on these different file writers and see which one's faster for you. It's really, really interesting. And I mean, I wrote a little database and I wanted to, to make it sort of faster. It was, it's like a, I'm implementing most of what CouchDB does. And so I wanted it to be faster than CouchDB for this particular benchmark. And I was like, oh, well, I probably need a bloom filter. If I was writing any other database, I would need to write a bloom filter. And instead I had to pick which bloom filter module I wanted to use it of like the five that are in npm uh, and so that was you know five lines of code and all of a sudden it's twice as fast for this particular use case and it just makes writing all of this and makes the ecosystem way more diverse and a lot lot simpler so rather than having you know the giant database project there's just a bunch of little modules everywhere so yeah I guess that's what I wanted to talk about sweet and Fest. <laughs> can, we
0: can get to that do you want to make that one of your picks or do you want to talk about it now uh, sure, I, I can just, just move on do to That's fine. Okay, cool. Well, let's, let's move on to the picks. Okay. Um, Joe, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I'll do my picks. I think I'm only going to pick books today. The reason being, I went on a trip to Ecuador, and so I got to read a lot because while I was on a trip to Ecuador, I got stuck in Panama for two days in an airport, which and, and also in Miami for like a day in an airport. So I got to read a lot. And so I'm going to pick a couple of books. I already picked in a previous episode, I think I picked Steelheart a new book by Brandon Sanderson. So I'm going to pick a classic by Brandon Sanderson, Mistborn, which I read in its entirety while I was... I'd, I'd read a little bit of it but, before, but I read that almost whole thing. Mistborn was like, I think, his first kind of real breakout novel. And it was great. It was an awesome novel. I enjoyed it every bit as much as I enjoyed Hurt*. And for my second pick, I'm going to pick Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, which is about an analysis of disadvantages and whether or not those are really truly disadvantages or not. So it's great and it starts out with this amazing story about this basketball team of twelve year old girls that nearly took their entire league competition with a bunch of girls who didn't know how to play basketball, like most of them had never played before and they were the shortest and the worst skilled players, but they nearly took it because their coach didn't know basketball. It was a great a great book. I really enjoyed that. So those are gonna be my two picks.
0: Sweet. I'll go next. So I just have one pick. It's also a book. It's called Willpower, Rediscovering Our Greatest Strength. I mean, it's the kind of title that you would look at and like toss into the garbage can as like a cheesy self-help book, but it's pretty good. I'm, I'm about halfway through it. So I'm not done with it all the way, but it's an interesting summary of some psychological research into willpower and what helps you build it up and what depletes it. So it talks a lot about decision fatigue. So if you have to make lots of decisions, it kind of depletes your willpower towards the end so that you are more likely to just choose the default, choose the easiest path. And it it talks about like the role of nutrition and willpower and blood sugar levels and stuff like that. It's been pretty fascinating. So that's my only pick. Uh, Michael, do you want to talk about yours?
2: Sure, I have a couple. So my first ones are learning resources. A new book came out by Henrik called Human JavaScript. It's available online. It's one of the better books, sort of, on learning JavaScript. So, for people that want to grab a book, I would do that one. The next one is a website called nodeschool.io. Nodeschool is awesome. At NodeConf, everybody sort of created different slides and materials to do their workshop, but Substack actually wrote this whole framework for doing a choose-your-own-adventure-style learning exercise. So he wrote this thing called Stream Adventure, which is a choose-your-own-adventure learning of streams. Um, And people have taken that and written four more now. Or no, sorry, three more than just that one. And they're all available at NodeSchool. So one is on just learning Node, one is on uh, functional programming, and another one's on the, the LevelDB stuff that I talked about earlier. And now we're actually doing some Node School in-person events. So there's one in London on the 13th and one uh, at GitHub in San Francisco on the 21st of November 2013. These will actually be sort of the basis for the workshops that we're going to do at JSFest. Okay, so then I have some conferency stuff for my other picks. So one is jsconf.com. At this point, the JSConf family has really kind of gotten huge and, and blown up. So there are, I think, seven different JSConfs. You know, it's not one person or one corporation or anything running these. These are all run by, you know, individuals and we just, we just kind of help each other and have like a, a little back channel community that gets these all going. And then there's sort of a broader JSConf family of events. So you see things like Cascadia JS and NodeConf and, uh, and even the upcoming JSFest. So if you go to jsconf.com, you can see which ones are up and which ones are tickets available right now and last is JS Fest so JS Fest is my new conference I built this conference with accessibility in mind so the idea is that there's this huge like long tail of JavaScript developers that are new that really don't feel all that comfortable going to a JSConf or a NodeConf because those are smaller sort of intimate events and it can just be a little bit overwhelming and they and the content isn't as newcomer friendly as it could be so JSFest is really like a way to bring everybody out and get everybody excited and energized and the way that we're doing it is a festival format so we have all kinds of different events going on all different dates. So there's always something going on. Every event is sort of individually ticketed. Some are just fun things, some are more traditional conferences, some are unconferences, some are hackathons. So the stuff that we've announced so far is two sort of main events that are narratives. So they're very similar to the format that I talked about for NodeConf 2012, where there was a, a sort of narrative structure. And there's going to be an indie webcamp and there's also a DHTMLConf. Tickets just went on sale today. So DHTMLConf, just go to DHTMLConf.com to really understand it. You've really got to take in the visual presence to understand <laughs> DHTMLConf. conf. Um, beautiful. Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> totally awesome. <laughs> um, so I think you mean so totally rad. rad.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the animated GIFs are, are pretty great, too. I also love that I, I actually used Bootstrap, so that center tag with the triple MC hammer and marquee, those are all responsive.
1: <laughs> That's so awesome. It goes down to one MC uh, hammer
2: on a phone. <laughs> <laughs> So those are what have been announced so far, but we're also working on like a ton of other cool events. So like a Node Copter, we're talking about it doing like a WebRTC camp. I want to do a TC39 town hall so we get like members of the JavaScript sort of standard committee and then we just get normal developers there and they can ask them sort of questions. We want to do a robots event. We want to do a live node up. We want to do some distillery and brewery tours just like for fun. Um, we're talking about doing a silent disco. So this is crazy. This is like a, you get a DJ... And rather than playing out of speakers, it displays into an FM transmitter, and then everybody has headphones on, tuned to that FM station. And I think we're going to build the FM things with like Arduino's and uh, some JavaScript. And um, and so if you walk by, there's no music playing, but everybody's dancing <laughs> together, and it looks like a big show. But it's just totally hear all these sound.
0: people breathing really heavy, and like, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah.
2: I, I mean, I want to try to put together like an art show and just there's there's all kinds of cool stuff and we're still adding things like we want to add security events and maybe some Firefox OS stuff. So there's a lot of different ideas that we have and we're just kind of seeing what we can do. But um, it's going to be a really, really fun time in, in San Francisco. And you can go to JS, JSFest.com to check that out.
0: Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Michael. It's been great to talk to you.
2: It's been really good to get some
0: insight into, into Node stuff in general and its influence on the web. Great, yeah, thanks. All right, we will sign off. See you guys later.